The Old Testament lesson from the lectionary this morning comes from the book of the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Listen now for the word of God. The oracle that the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous, therefore judgment comes forth perverted. I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what God will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them. But the righteous live by their faith. And the New Testament lesson from the lectionary comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, the story of Zacchaeus. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, didn't we just do Zacchaeus not too long ago? Congratulations, you were in church a year ago when I looked up the wrong year's lectionary text. <laughs> so we are back once again this year <laughs> revisiting the story of Zacchaeus. Fortunately, it is a rich text worth revisiting this morning. So listen once again for God's word to you. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down from there, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, Jesus has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
An encounter with Jesus Christ should prompt us to go back and make things right. So compelling is his presence, so assuring is his grace, and and so demanding is his call that we cannot stand idly by. No, we can never be the same. An encounter with Jesus Christ should prompt us to go back and make things right. When he calls us out of our hiding, when he insists that he is coming to us and going with us, Jesus asks more of us than just a from now on kind of obedience. He also requires that we make amends for past wrongs, that we be reconciled to one another. And this is where the demands of discipleship become much harder. After his encounter with Jesus, it would have been much easier for Zacchaeus to agree to stop defrauding people from now on. I'm a changed man, so moving forward, I'll live honestly, Zacchaeus could have said. But that way, that way he could have kept the fruit of his tax-collecting labor, you see, the sour grapes of being in cahoots with Rome and preying on the vulnerable. Zacchaeus has a lot to lose going into his encounter with Jesus. Zacchaeus may be short in stature, but he's climbed high on the Roman system of exploitation. You see, taxes were not collected by civil servants as they are today, but by men who jousted for the rights to tax certain areas and districts, because it was lucrative for them as well as for the state. If you lived in Jericho and Zacchaeus came knocking on your door for tax collection, you'd be obliged to give him whatever he asked or demanded from you. You had no way of knowing what your tax bracket was or how much Rome actually wanted to collect from your household. If Rome only demanded $100 from your house, Zacchaeus could demand that you hand over 150 he would then pass along your taxes to Rome and keep the extra 50 for himself. You see, that's how tax collectors became so rich and so hated. They would charge extra in taxes and skim off the top to line their own pockets. And Zacchaeus, who Luke calls the chief tax collector, had clearly made good use of this system that was begging to be exploited. So it's no small thing that after his encounter with Jesus, Zacchaeus decides to go back and to try to make things right. Look, he says to Jesus, half my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll pay back four times as much. The Old Testament law required that a wrongdoer not only confess their wrongdoing and pay back full repayment of a wrong, but they also had to pay back an additional 20% on top of that. But Zacchaeus offers to pay back much more, four times as much as the amount he defrauded, while also giving half his possessions to the poor. 
Clearly, Zacchaeus is doing more than just trying to restore parity or return what never should have been his in the first place. He's making a good faith effort to be reconciled to those he has wronged. This is not some akuna matata, leave the past behind you kind of repentance. This is a repentance that prompts him to go back and make things right. It's difficult and it's costly, but it's the demands of true discipleship. During my last year in Pittsburgh, I worked as a chaplain at a men's shelter downtown. And I met regularly with a man who had finally found his footing and was putting his life back together. At first, he was content just with finding housing and holding down a stable job. But over time, he decided he wanted to try to go back and make amends for some broken relationships that had severed during his former erratic behavior. We discussed many times what he could and could not control as he tried to make things right. He could control his own confession, his ownership of wrongdoing. He could control his openness to some kind of restoration or healing. And he could control his willingness to put himself out there, however uncertain he might be of the kind of response he might receive. But there was plenty also he could not control. He couldn't control others' willingness to reconnect with him. He couldn't control the anger or the sadness he might face as the old wounds he had inflicted in his former life continued to cause pain. And he could not control whether the open hand he would extend would be met with another open hand or with a clenched fist. As I recall, the man's efforts had mixed results, and he was still working at it when I stopped working at that shelter. Some people forgave him, while others kept their distance. But I remember him telling me the last time I met with him that he was satisfied with the fact that he was doing the best he could to seek reconciliation, and the rest, he said, was up to God. And that's true. It makes me wonder how Zacchaeus' restoration tour unfolded after Jesus' encounter with him. I wonder how many people accepted his repentance and how many refused his apology. And I wonder how Zacchaeus navigated the choppy waters of reconciliation. Could he maintain his humility and his sincerity in the face of the anger and resentment he would surely encounter among those he had wronged? Or would he retreat back into defensiveness and adopt the sort of attitude that says, you should just be thankful I'm doing this? Of course, we don't know. But these are the stakes that come when we try to seek reconciliation. It's one thing to resolve to leave the past behind and simply move on, but it's another thing to be the first to reach back into the past and say, I was wrong. How can I make things right? Zacchaeus demonstrates the sincerity of his discipleship by making the hard choice to try to make things right with those he has wronged. Now, there's much important conversation in our society today about how we as a nation can make amends 
or past wrongs. Especially conversations about racism seek to reckon with the reality that for generations, black Americans were unable to accumulate wealth and social power, not only during the era of slavery, but also during the era of Jim Crow, and even into today's world of mass incarceration and other social inequalities. Many white Americans would prefer to say, okay, from now on, we won't discriminate. Moving forward, we can have a fair society, but we should really just leave the past behind. No need to revisit it. But such an approach maintains the accumulated advantages of years of wrongdoing without taking ownership to go back and to say to people of color, we were wrong. How can we make things right? Now, whether on a national scale or in our own individual lives, reconciliation requires honesty, and it requires a willingness to give something up. It requires us to expose ourselves to the pain of the wounds we have contributed to. And anger sometimes precedes genuine reconciliation. And it's not fun, I know. And so when the lure of self-preservation tries to dissuade us from going back and making things right, it requires courage to open ourselves to correction and give God the space to work among us. Our, re our efforts at reconciliation need not be limited to major wrongdoings. Sometimes if we think about how our day-to-day -day actions affect other people, we may simply realize that we owe someone an apology, that we should give credit where credit is due, or we should acknowledge our role in a prevailing conflict or misunderstanding. Little reconciliations here and there create strong, lasting relationships. Or perhaps you're on the other side of things, the other side of the coin. Perhaps you're the one who has been wronged, and you have a choice whether or not to forgive and accept an apology. When someone's indebted to us, we can choose whether to relinquish their debt, and with it, the power that that debt seems to give us, or to continue to hold the other person in contempt and resentment. But wherever you might find yourself this morning in God's movement of reconciliation, it's important to remember that all efforts towards reconciliation are a sign of God's salvation in the world. Before Zacchaeus' endeavor to go back and make things right yields any results, Jesus declares from the outset, today, salvation has come to this house. So too, whenever we resolve to make amends, whenever we resolve to seek forgiveness and reconciliation, whatever the results may prove to be, we exhibit a sign of God's salvation among us. However receptive others may be, and whether or not we are met with openness and receptivity, God calls us to do what we can to show forth on a small scale what God has accomplished on a large scale. For God has reconciled the whole world back to God through Jesus Christ, 
who bids us to follow him as his faithful disciples, just as Zacchaeus does. All we can do is try, and from there we must leave the rest to God, to our God who still seeks and saves the lost. Thanks be to God. Amen.